Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. In today's episode of Project Recovery... You know, I knew it was a clean needle. He showed me the whole bag. He showed me all this other stuff. And what happened in that moment is I felt like my world, if you were to put like a scale of 1 to 10 on events or different things that gave you a sense of just feeling okay and being all right, the max I'd been to was maybe a 6 or a 7. And suddenly after doing that, I'd hit an 11. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at Know Your Script. Uh, they've got a town hall coming up in a, just about a week, and I'll be emceeing that and kind of navigating the waters for all the things that they're doing now. Know Your Script is a is a great program. It's a great resource. Go check them out at knowyourscript.org. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt. Dr. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, a lot of times we check in with me and my recovery and yeah. how things are going. Every <laughs> once in a while, I like to flip the script and become the therapist to you. Okay, bring it on. So what's going on in your world? I mean, because I know that mental health is going to be the next epidemic if it's not already here. I think it's already here. And so what are you seeing on the front lines out there now with people looking for help? Just lots and lots of people realizing they they need some support, need some help, uh, not really knowing uh, always where to go, what to do. In fact, I, uh, I visited with a person for the first time, our first time visit today. And, uh, it was interesting. It's a person who's struggled with anxiety for a lot of years. Um, but just finally kind of figuring out how to kind of what would work to help him. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting. So on the one hand, I think we do have uh, an epidemic of mental health issues, which have been dramatically exacerbated by all the crazy stuff of the last 12 months. Uh, but on top of that, it's cool that people are are um, reaching out and getting help and figuring out that I don't have to live with depression. I don't have to live with anxiety. I can feel better, feel happier, feel more productive. So I'm actually really happy to be part of that. You know, I, I'm kind of glad that you brought that out as you guys being a first stop for people trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Because lately, my phone and my Facebook and my Instagram have been inundated of people trying to figure out what their next step is. Mm -hmm. And I often say, uh, you know, a therapist is a good place. But you say even one before a therapist is a family doctor. Yeah. Well, a lot of times I think mental health has some problems as an organization, if we are that. And, and access is one. And we constantly are talking about it, at least in our clinic, about how to improve access and help people come in easily. But uh, most people are really comfortable with accessing their family doctor, their primary care physician. And so that's a great first stop if, if you're not sure that how you're feeling is normal. Uh, if there's something more that can be done about how you're feeling, that's a great place to stop. Talk to your doc about it. He or she, I'm sure, would be happy to make a referral to mental health for you. Uh, or even help you start on some medications, whatever seems to be needed. But that's uh, you can usually get into one of your docs pretty quick. So you know, I had this whole thing where I wanted to go down this lane, but you said something that sparked my brain. Mm. You're not normal. 
you know, you said that, you know, maybe you're not feeling normal. Mm-hmm. What is normal? Because I think there's a lot of people who have found themselves in these chairs on this podcast yeah. because they didn't so, air quote, feel normal. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is that nobody really knows what normal is. It's a stereotype that most of us think that we need to be it's kind of normal. But I yeah. think if we actually talked from our heart and opened up, we're... Yeah. No one's really normal. We're just trying to figure out how to get through this world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's definitely one way to look at it, and I don't disagree for sure. And in fact, it's funny you caught me using the word normal because I, I don't use that word very often. I usually use typical because typical kind of fits more. It can be individualized more. So I would say if a person's saying, well, I don't know if how I feel is normal, then I would say, well, is it a big departure from how you normally feel or how you'd like to feel? So you can kind of set your own gauge on what's normal for you, I think. Man, I love talking to you because you <laughs> explain what's going on in my head so well. Uh, lately, people have been reaching out to me and uh, they want to get help for loved ones. Sure. And, uh, you know, they go, my son or daughter's got a drinking problem. My husband or wife has a substance abuse problem. Yeah. And my first question is, now this is going to seem weird. Because the drinking is a problem. There's no doubt about it if you're talking to me that the drinking isn't a problem. But I think there's probably more problems that we need to get to the root of. Because when I was explained to when I was in recovery, my problems were my problems. And drinking was a way to solve my problems. It was the best way I knew how to deal with my problems. And then drinking did become a problem because it changes the chemistry of the body and the mind and all that other stuff. So there's no doubt that drinking was a huge problem. Yeah, it eventually becomes its own problem. Yeah, but for a lot of people, when they get into substance abuse or alcohol or whatever it is to numb themselves, to take them away from an experience that they don't want to be in, that's the way that they're dealing with it. So we've got to go back and figure out what people's problems are. And so I often tell people when they call me, I go, you know, I understand that drinking or opioids or heroin or is a problem. Mm-hmm. But have we looked back further to see what really is the major problem that led them down that road? What are the roots of that problem? Or a better way to say it might be, um, you know, what are what is the person self-medicating for, right? Like, is it an anxiety disorder or depression? It could be another mental health issue. Is it, um, oh, sh- shoot, like uh, financial problems have been huge this year with people being underemployed or unemployed. And so that's easily, easily you can understand how a person wants to numb that out. Um, relationships have been uh, difficult this year because everybody's <laughs> under the same roof all the time. And that's changing, which is wonderful. So, yeah, I, I would say that, um, what you want to do is look at kind of what is the underlying stress and are you self-medicating to deal with that stress both will now need to be dealt with right you can't really work on underlying stress if you're uh you know drunk or high Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we have to get that under control but quickly move into understanding why did i start using this substance you know what what are the underlying factors that's why i think a therapist is so crucial to recovery because it allows you to go deeper into those problems to search back in your history and give yourself some tools of ways to maintain your sobriety i'll uh, i'll re- i'll let you behind my curtain because you know often we have people on this podcast who end up in this seat because trauma when they were really young sure you know, whether it's sexual abuse or, or, you know, things like that. I I look back in my history and and I didn't have anything very traumatic. 
But what I did was I was very insecure. And, and what, a lot of people are going to go, what, you were on TV, you were mm-hmm. on radio, you were in this. But no, I was insecure. I, insecurity has always been a big part of why I've been so boisterous and loud because then right. I could dictate the conversation. I could attract the attention when I wanted it. But it was a way to mask my insecurity. And so that was which when, is also really common. A lot of a lot of listeners may be surprised by that, but a lot of people who find themselves in a position of being on stage in some fact factor of life are actually developed that ability to deal with their anxiety or their insecurities, just like you're saying. And you know, uh, relationship wise, I mean, I can tell you right now, I was not the best husband, and I don't even think I'm the best boyfriend. You know, because I don't really know how to do that very well. And and I'm learning. And and I talk to my girlfriend, and I talk to my ex wife, and I and I try to figure out how I can be a better partner. But I'm a selfish guy. I mean, I. The, the, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, I'm selfish and I'm learning to be a better sharer and a better carer and and, and trying to figure that out. But when that was all coupled in and my best way to to get away from all that was alcohol. And so that any time that I was put up a front of anything that was bothering me, gone. Yeah. Cool. You know, and then then it just exasperated and got worse and worse and worse. And then actually the alcohol became the problem. But a lot of it was my problems. And so I'm still trying to deal with those things. Now the great thing is I can deal with them with a sober mind and, and, and I have some tools. Right. So instead of escaping the issue and things tend to get worse when we do that, you're learning skills so you can directly address you know, relationship stress or whatever it happens to be. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, Carl Rogers was a famous therapist who talked about becoming. And, you know, the the healthiest, happiest people are always throughout their life in the process of becoming the person they want to be. And so the fact that you're willing to take notes from your ex-wife, uh, I'm not sure I'm that brave, um, <laughs> would, uh, you know, tells me that, yeah, you're you're still in that process of becoming the best version of yourself. So that that's what life's all about. And, and I don't want to discount uh, working out. Working out has been very crucial sure. to my recovery. And it's very hard, trust me, to lift weights drunk. <laughs> you know? yeah. you, may, mean, you may not feel too motivated. Yeah. No, and I'm just telling you out of honesty, I've tried it. It wasn't It wasn't <laughs> Didn't work good. out, huh? Uh-uh. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing is, uh, so I'm on the tee box the other day getting ready to tee off and yeah. ran into some of my buddies uh, and they were partying and having a good time. And one of them goes, what's it like being sober, man? And I go, it's pretty good. He goes, well, how's life changed? And I go, well, it hasn't changed that much. I just say sorry a lot less. <laughs> I like it. But, but that's a pretty big thing. If you can say sorry less often, you're doing something right. I still say sorry because I am me and I still mess up and I say stupid yeah. things and I'm irreverent and, and I push the envelope sometimes. But it's never because. It's a significantly fewer times you're saying it. So the crazy thing about alcohol for me, and that's why it's such a great business. I mean, that's why you see the commercials. That's why you see see all this stuff because alcohol is there when you're down alcohol is there when you're up and so yep. if, if if i did something stupid and i often did it was easy to say well it wasn't me it was i got, I got the too, alcohol i got too faded i got yeah. too drunk i mean you know me i wouldn't say that if i wasn't hammered you know and so it, it was the scapegoat right right yeah yeah it was the perfect scapegoat it was the alcohol and if 
I was having a good time and partying and yeah. said something dumb. I go, hey, man, come on. It was the alcohol. We were partying. It was- I think John Mulaney has a stand-up routine about that very thing where he's like, you know, the problem is when you become sober, you have to take responsibility for what you say. And that was you know? tough. <laughs> but that, but for me, yeah. that, that's no joke. I mean, that's that was the tough thing was taking responsibility yeah. and going, I've got to own some of this. Yeah. So I was talking to another lady on the way in trying to help her out with some loved ones. And I said, you know, the problem is, is that if, if if I mess up, I don't have that scapegoat to go anymore. Yeah. Sometimes I just have to sit in it, and you'll hear that from a lot of people in recovery talking about sitting in it. Yeah, and it stinks owning it, and it's not fun. Mm-hmm. But you have to own it. Yeah, and sometimes by owning it, you can take the power away from it, and you realize that it's not the end of the world. Uh, and you're and you're going to be able to move on. Yeah. Well, and the reality is, people around you got tired of hearing that excuse anyway. Oh yeah. You know, like so. You know, you were still busting out the excuse of I was faded, but the reality is, everybody around you was kind of like, eh, no, that's not an excuse anymore, right? Yeah. And so now you're you're apologizing less often because you're more self aware and and you are being more authentic and and we all rub people the wrong way sometimes. So you know. Any healthy adult's going to be prepared to say sorry once in a while. But if it's once in a while, you're probably doing fine. If it's every day, you're, you're doing something wrong. So I heard this say, interview with Samuel Jackson, who's in recovery. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked him, he goes, when did it get bad? And he said, towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and I think that's how most people's story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, that's when it got bad. <laughs> that's when it got bad is till yeah. the end. Yeah. But I think, truth be told, you, you see it coming a mile away. Right. But you do what I like to tell people. You're negotiating with your sobriety. You're making deals. You're yeah. trying to figure it out. You're making promises that you'll never keep. You plan on making them, but they don't work out that way. Because in, in the world of recovery, it works out two ways. It's really simple. Either you stop or it kills you. There's no middle ground. Right. No. And unfortunately, there are a lot of stories of people who, you know, the, the alcohol or the drugs just uh, won out in the end and, and they weren't able to to do what we're encouraging people to do by sharing people's stories here. And that is to give give uh, recovery a chance because it's that's where you are going to live your best life. And I'm excited for our guest today. And uh, unfortunately, he just lost a loved one uh, just recently uh, to addiction. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of people who've sat down in that chair right there that I'm pointing at that nobody can see who have been friends of mine. And I met this guy in seventh grade. And when they call this Small Lake City, it is Small Lake City because I've probably got a good relationship with a lot of people who have sat down in the chair. At the beginning, it was because they'd give me a ride to here because I didn't have a car. <laughs> right. I remember the, the bum in the ride days. Yeah. But uh, his name is John Red. He's working at a new recovery center. We're going to hear his story. Stick around. More Project Recovery is on its way. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? 
in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. That means he's possibly the smartest man in the room, but we haven't met our guest yet today, who's also got a master's, right? Yes. Uh, How many degrees do you have, John? A degree in psychology, um, a certificate to the graduate school of social work at the U, and then an MBA from the Y. Uh, John Red is our guest. Uh, That's a lot. He's our guest today. He's an old friend of mine. Uh, we've worked in the recovery business uh, together for at least a week and a half at one place. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've met for coffee <laughs> a couple of times, and uh, you reached out to me. Uh, actually, I see him almost every day running past my house. Oh, yeah? Uh, but he reached out and said, you know, I've been a fan of your podcast. Uh, I think I'd like to tell my story. Would you have me on? And I said, 100%. Definitely. So let's get to it. Where does the story of John Red begin? Yeah, that's a tough question. So I think the the story of me begins, I'm the oldest of six kids, pretty much raised in Farmington, five boys and then a girl. Um, grew up in a good neighborhood, a good home. Um, when I was, But I was always the kid who felt a little anxious. Like I always just felt like there was something different about me where I could see people get comfortable. And this is this is the funny thing. Like Casey talks about when we were in high school, and I heard Casey in the introduction talk about how he was so self-conscious. Like Casey always seemed from the outside that he had it all together. Mm-hmm. Where I just kept thinking, man, how does how does this go so smoothly for him? How does this go so smoothly for the people around me? It was, it was as if everybody got the book on how to live this world, and somehow I missed it. And I knew that. And I knew everybody else knew that. As weird as that may sound. So... Like to give you an idea of how just kind of the social anxiety and how I was just always this anxious kid. I, When I was six years old, my parents moved us to France and they put me in French school. So all I knew how to say was, je m'appelle, my name is Jonathan, Jonathan, that's it. Like no way to ask for the bathroom, nothing else. You would assume that that would be a situation where someone would have a ton of anxiety. I did, but that anxiety wasn't new to me. It wasn't situational. It was something that I had just always kind of lived with and thought, I need to figure out how to function in this world. And so we lived in France for a couple of years, moved back to Farmington when I was eight. Um, Had amazing parents, like have amazing parents. Like grew up, was part of it, and uh, my parents were pretty active in um, the religion, and I knew there were a bunch of rules at our house and had a hard time following all of those rules. Um, and then really, if we just kind of fast forward, like I'll take you to when I was 13, 14 years old, the summer in between eighth and ninth grade. Perfect. I had a friend come over and the friend brought over six Smirnoff mini bottles and my parents were gone and we went and set them up on the windowsill in my bedroom. Um, and I drank three and he drank three. And I remember that night learning how to pronounce Smirnoff. Um, I have thought for the last three and a half years what kind of orange juice we mixed with it, and I have no idea. I don't know if it was tangy. I don't know if it was flat because the Smirnoff's what had the effect. I drank drank those three mini bottles. We went out in the neighborhood. Suddenly, I was making eye contact with the pretty girls, like actually speaking to them, not just staring at my feet. Um, I thought I was funny. It seemed to me other people did too. And I thought, man, I think I've figured out how I'm going to be a part of this world. So you felt like you found the cheat code or the missing link to what makes John thrive in this world. 
yeah, just just how to exist in it without all this self-consciousness that was going through me all the time. That is so common. Like we've we've had people on this podcast, but I, more more often in my practice, that's what I talk to people about so often is anxiety. And when you have the way you're describing it, that's a biologically predisposed predisposition to anxiety. You didn't do anything, nothing happened. You were just kind of born and that's how the genes lined up and you have this anxiety. And a lot in a lot of textbooks, they call it, uh, it's an experience of feeling like you're on stage all the time, right? You're like, everybody's looking at me. I feel self-conscious. I feel awkward. And so you do tend to withdraw. Um, avoidance is the hallmark behavior of anxiety. And so, like you said, you, you, you avoid the eye contact. You look at your shoes. You withdraw. You think of something funny to say, but then quickly you decide not to say it because, you know, what if not everybody laughs? You know, and you kind of go through all that kind of stuff. And it's so amazing. That's such a constant 24-7 experience for a young person who's trying to develop their identity and who they are. And then when you find something that takes it away, that's just got to be like, you know, chorus of angels, heaven's part. You feel like a million bucks when you find something that takes that miserable feeling away. Yeah, Smirnoff was magic at 14. Like I just, I could not believe that's the effect that I would have and that's what happened. And um, and the one thing I knew, I just, I looked at my life and I thought, man, I've been restless, irritable, and discontent for 14 years and now I know how I'm <laughs> going to be a part of this world. Like yeah. it had been a long time and I, I knew that the one thing that had to happen is I needed more of that. Um, and I was just to what you were saying, Dr. Matt, I was a guy who, um, I always wanted to be a part of, but I never wanted to stand out. I never wanted the attention. I just wanted to kind of blend in. And, um, in my mind, I was never doing that very well. Mm -hmm. So you found, fell in love instantaneously with alcohol. Yeah. And your only question was, where do I get more? Yeah. And how and when? And so how quick did you find more? Oh, it it just it became a every weekend thing, and I think that I became resourceful. Like you, you start connecting with the people who um, are doing that because you realize that's kind of what you want to do. And so for me, um, it just progressed, and it progressed through the end of through ninth grade, and then it progressed, and it's just interesting. I remember. Let's pump pump the brakes for a second. I want to ask a question. Yeah. (laughs) So you had mentioned that that you grew up in a a religious household. I'm going to guess a a, a LDS, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And so one of the, and you said there was a lot of rules and you weren't great at following the rules, but that's, that's a big one is, is no alcohol. Correct. Is a big one. Uh, If you're an active member of the church, you do not drink alcohol. There aren't exceptions, right? Yeah. Even the sacrament. Wine is really just water, yeah, right? Absolutely. So, tell me, was there a struggle within you at all being that kid? Because when you're, you know, when you're old like me, you figured out your own path in life. But when you're 13, you're still kind of like wanting to do the right thing, you know, please everybody. Was that a struggle for you, huge, choosing the alcohol over the rules? Huge struggle. Like I, I can remember, like vividly, I can remember in my mind thinking, "Man, this is." This might be the thing that takes me to hell, but I don't know how I'm going to be a part of it. My dad had just got called to be the bishop, so he was like the bishop of the ward if we're going like along those so, lines. So for so, non-Mormon listeners, that's the leader of the congregation. Leader that's of the a congregation. Big, the bishop the is a big job, and everybody looks to him for 
being the example, and his family gets caught up in that too. Everybody's watching the bishop's family. And for when you're called to bishop, for many, it's an honor. It's an honor oh, sure. for, for that. So there's a lot of eyes looking on that. And so you're wrestling with... This makes me feel good. This makes me fit in. But it's against everything my family's teaching me. And you said it yourself. You said, this might be thing that takes me to hell, but I don't know how I can live without it. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I, I remember the cognitive dissonance going on just at that time. I remember that um, my thoughts and my values were out of line with my actions. Um, but my actions gave me such a peace that I thought, man, I need to figure out how to do this again. And I started getting friend groups and support and, um, you know, you learn, you learn the justifications of the people around you. And so I associated with people who drink and learned their justifications. And, um, you know, you always have a friend that's worse off than you so that you can compare yourself to them and say, I'm not that bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I had a few of those guys. And so I'm like, well, as, as long as I'm not that bad, I'm okay. Um, still, um, trying to figure out how to keep it going. I, And Casey, this is kind of interesting. I remember we were, what, eighth grade, ninth grade. Mm-hmm. I, and I, one memory I have of Casey, so Dr. Matt asked about this. I remember <laughs> one day at school, like the biggest kid in school came up and started picking on Casey. And Casey wasn't very big. He was just really California cool, you know, like blonde hair. Got the curly just, hair, got the, yeah, the curls. Just, yeah. yeah, just coming at it that way. And I thought, man, Casey's going to get licked. <laughs> like this dude's going to get cleaned up, but you know, it's, it's a train wreck. So you just want to see it. And, and what happened is Casey destroyed this guy who was like twice his size. And then Casey and I sat down and we ate lunch together that afternoon. And I'm like, wow, he handled that really smooth. Like, I wish I could be Casey. Well, but the, but the true story on that is, is my little brother was uh, a sixth grader at the time, and some big guys were bullying him in the classroom ah. and in the bathroom. And he came to me. He goes, I don't want to go to school. And I go, why? He goes, because they pick on me, Case. And I go, okay. Will you go to school tomorrow? Point out who it is. And I said, okay. So we go there, and he goes, it's that guy. And so I go up to this guy, and I go, hey, quit messing with my little brother or me and you're going to have a problem. And this guy was bigger than me. And yeah. then this guy next to him goes, well, if you got a problem with him, you got a problem with me. And that guy was bigger than the guy before. <laughs> and then a third guy goes, and if you got a problem with these two, you got a problem with me. And I go, hey, look, I don't want a problem with <laughs> any is, of you guys. I just, I just want you guys to stop messing with my little brother. Yeah. And so then that was it. And then at lunchtime, this guy comes up and he was bigger than the other three. And he goes, I heard you're messing with these guys and now you got a problem with me. And I go, I don't want a problem with anybody. I just want people to quit messing with my little brother. He goes, meet me after school and we're going to fight. And I said, I don't know about you, but I'm not meeting anywhere to fight. If we're going to fight, we're going to do it now. And I just hauled off and hit the guy (laughs) and just gave him everything I got and just didn't stop. Wow. I'm friends with the guy now. His name's Dustin. He's a great guy. I have no doubt. I was going to ask if you became friends with him because that's the Casey way. But but yeah. that was the, but, but see, that's the thing is that he saw one thing, and the reality was I was fighting for my little brother, and yeah. we were just new to the school. And I was like, I've got to do something. Yeah. And I didn't want to hit the guy. I didn't. But I thought, this is I've, what do we do? It sounded doing like you, you were headed that way anyway. Yeah. And so it's like, well, if we're making an appointment to fight, it sounds like we're going to fight. My dad yeah. always says, <laughs> it's better to be the one that throws <laughs> yeah. the first punch. Yeah. I think your dad and my dad went to the same parents. So school. I did. Yeah. But, but that's kind of the perception. And that I think that John so eloquently uh, 
talking about is that everybody thinks the other guy's got it going on. Right, right. Especially at that age, junior high, everybody feels awkward. Everybody feels self-conscious, at least a little bit. Some people might deal with it like Casey and be the extrovert and the outgoing person and control the conversation and control the interaction. Most kids don't. Most kids are introverted or feel awkward or act obnoxious to sort of deal with it. And everybody has the perception that I'm the only one that feels this way. And everybody else feels better. But to to your credit, I, I do think that what you're describing was truly a social anxiety disorder. I think you felt uncomfortable in your own skin. And unless a person's ever felt like that, whew, they have no idea what it means to have it go away for a few minutes. Yeah, I was, I was painfully uncomfortable in my own skin to a point where everything progressed. And that was like a that story, that was like a good day for me because it was like a real life David and Goliath. Like I remember that yeah. and David won and I was just <laughs> like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. yeah. But then what happened in my life is I just, I I worked, I, I did enough to stay out of trouble. So I kept a job, um, somehow figured school out and was able to get good grades, um, which kept me out of trouble. I'd still, I'd still get in trouble, but I wouldn't get as much attention if I was getting a 3.5 as I would as I was getting like a one five. It's interesting that he brings this up because I think a lot of us in the addict world do this, and it's a justification. Right. Like, I mean, I had it going with me to a certain extent where it's like, hey, he's drinking way too much, but he's got all the success. He's on TV. He's doing these things. So it can't be that bad. And and as far as I remember, during the TV days, you were never late. You were always there on time, ready to go. And, and yeah, and I think that's what John's saying is that, I mean, if, 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 if he's turning in a 3.5 and he's got a job... I mean, and those are two major markers. Uh, let's be honest. We're we're all parents. Like you look at your kid, and he's like, "Well, he's got good grades, and he's got a job. How bad <laughs> can know? it really right. be?" Yeah, we think we 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 value those, and maybe in some some ways overvalue those. But truth be told, it was pretty bad for you. Sounds like you were partying pretty hard through high school. All through high school. Um, now, w- all we, through high school, we've talked about alcohol. Were you were you venturing off into any other? Yeah, I I had taken acid. I was smoking weed daily. Um, I got to a point where I was kind of experimenting with cocaine and all of these different things. And that kind of, that progresses through my story. So after graduating high school, I leave home like days after leaving high school, uh, move in with some friends down in Salt Lake and think, man, I've got it made. Like I don't have, I can drink when I want. I can do whatever I want. Nobody's Nobody's like no governor on the engine. No governor. Nobody's roping me in. Yep. I still remember the first time I was able to put beer in my own fridge and not have to worry about my parents coming to to to, to look at it or to, you know what I mean right. to hide it underneath my bed or keep it in the garage in the golf bag or something right. like that. And well, there was a, I went to BYU, so I don't really know about that. But yeah, okay, oh, you had better hiding spots. <laughs> Uh, so you move down to Salt Lake and you I, think you've got, uh, the freeways open for party time. Yeah. The free, the freeway was open. And then, um, you know, I, I think eventually what we do with this disease is we cross lines that we don't expect to cross. Um, we get to points where we do the things we say we would never do. And so for me, I'll tell you what my lines were. So, um, I had done cocaine a few times, um, Enjoyed it, but it wasn't something that I was actively seeking out. It was more something that you just did when it was available. And one of my roommate's little brothers um, had a problem, and he had been shooting up heroin and cocaine for a year. And I was probably the one person who gave him 
like the most smack about it, telling him, man, you can't be doing this. Look at what you're doing in your life. And um, he came to me one day and said, hey, I've got like 10, 15 bucks. If you've got 10, 15 bucks, let's go buy a bag. And I thought, okay, I'm not doing anything this afternoon. Bought a bag. He said, I'll split it up. And so he split it up and he came out and he said, man, here's yours. And he, he had it in a needle. And I said, man, I'm, I'll never touch that. Never touch that. And after about 15 minutes of talking with him, he said, look, you're the one person who gives me the most grief about this. He goes, if you try this, then I'll believe that you know what's going on and I'll listen to you and we can see what to do. And I'll tell you what happened um, at that moment. So I, you know, I knew it was a clean needle. He showed me the whole bag. He showed me all this other stuff. And what happened in that moment is I felt like my world, if you were to put like a scale of one to 10 on like events or different things that gave you a sense of just feeling okay and being all right. Like the max I'd been to was maybe a six or a seven. And suddenly after doing that, I'd hit an 11. Um, and it was just a matter of like, once I stopped listening to the air around my head and all the stuff going on, I was just like, man, this is it. Like, this is it. Took you to another level. Took me to another level. And it was, Without realizing um, where it was going to take me just by that one initial decision, um, within six months of that, um, I was on the phone with my parents. I was 19 years old, and I was calling them, um, and I remember talking to my mom, and I remember just begging for help. And they came down to Salt Lake, um, picked me up, got me into a detox immediately, and um, what happened was, is I went to treatment at 19 and I remember going to treatment and I remember sitting in um, the rooms with the, at the treatment facility where I was at. And they, I went down to Arizona for it. This was years and years ago, um, almost 30 years ago. And I remember thinking, man, I finally found people that understand me. I finally found people that I'm going to be able to talk to and get along with. I was a lot younger than most of them. But I thought, this is it for me. They like, get me. They get me. Like, in a, in, which is a huge deal because I didn't get me. But somehow the people around me understood what was going on. I, I just always knew something was off. I didn't know that, that there were other people who felt the same way. And so I went to treatment. And after treatment, um, I decided that I'd go um, to college. So I went and got a degree in psychology from the University of Utah. Um, went to the Graduate School of Social Work at the time, and they had a program. It was essentially the LSAC, the Licensed Substance Abuse Counselor, um, mm -hmm. and went through that program and thought, this is what I'm going to do with my life, is I'm going to go into substance abuse counseling. The whole time you're doing that, are you sober? No, I'm not. I'm not entirely sober. And so, like, I would drink occasionally, but it, I my justification was, is, you know, I'm not shooting up. I'm not using heavy drugs. And people I do went, that a lot in the recovery world where they justify it like that. Well, alcohol is my thing, so I can smoke marijuana. Or mm -hmm, heroin and speedballs mm -hmm. was my thing, so drinking's okay. Uh, yeah. But what we're learning is, and for some people, that works. But for, for the most part, it, it's, it's a no-no. Yeah, for me in my life today, that doesn't work. But we can... Like, I, I can explain that. So, um, what, what, what was the mentality, though, of the treatment center? Because this, this is almost 30 years ago. Lots has changed uh, in, in the treatment world. Um, what did they say about it? Did, did they, was it, there? It was a 12 step program. Yeah. And so, it was a program that was based on abstinence and 
Um, I went to college and got some roommates and my roommates were drinking and I thought, okay, maybe these guys will just, I'll just do it the way these guys do it and I'll be fine. Okay. Um, and it, well, I went to treatment when I was 19. So I was thinking, man, alcohol is not my problem really anyways. It's like what started it off for me, but it was odd enough. Everything else became easier for Did me to access an alcohol. Did you make that connection though? Like you just said, alcohol started it off for me. I, I wonder, is that sort of a post hoc analysis when you're yeah. 19 i don't think you put those things together do you like you, you don't real realize that alcohol might have led to wanting to experiment with other drugs no i i didn't realize that that was the start of it um and so it, it, what happened for me is i went to treatment um i met my wife towards the end of graduating all these programs and we started dating um we decided that um and i hadn't been drinking for a while like it was something where once I moved out with those roommates, it's just not something I did anymore. So I put it aside and graduated um, the from the LSAC program and graduated with a degree in psychology, got married, um, and started a life. And I thought, okay, like I, I kind of made it. I'm pretty happy. We're here. There's going to be some dark chapters in my book of life, but we're past them. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that was that was my thought process. And what happened um, is then I decided that going into working in substance abuse was not something that I wanted to do. Um, and I went and worked at, at a place downtown and went and got a degree in a master's in business. From well, the may, what, okay, so you were you were ex, you were excited. You were you were stoked on. You met these people, and they get you, and you get them, and and you get the 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 certificate in in substance abuse counseling. What happened that caused you to think, God, oh, this isn't for me to work in? D- two main things happened. One, I had a guy that I had worked with who had been a professor and was a mentor, um, and a guy that I really got along with well. And once I got to know him better, um, I felt like what his work was doing was kind of chewing up a piece of his soul. He was just so jaded. Mm. And I thought, man, I I don't want to become this guy. Like if I do this, I may become this guy. And that's not that uncommon in healthcare broadly, but mental health specifically. Uh, people can get very burned out and, and jaded in the work they do. When your every day is seeing people on their darkest day. That's tough. That's, that's a tough road yeah. to haul, yeah. you know, and then you go home and yeah. how do you process all that stuff? We're going to find out more about that in just a second. We're listening. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Hey, we're back here on Project Recovery. Our guest today is John Red. He's talking about how the moment he decided uh, after going through all the programs, you didn't want to work in substance abuse. He didn't want to become jaded and... And, and then the other aspect to it was that this was back in 97. And so in 97, I was looking to see what they were hiring PhDs with psychology for a year. And they were making 32K. And I thought, five more years of school. Someday I'll make that. All of that debt. <laughs> like, I'll never pay this off. And so I went and worked at Fidelity Investments um, downtown. And Fidelity had a program at the time that reimbursed for an MBA. And I, I knew that I wanted school. I liked school. And the thing with school for me was that it was a place where I felt safe. I knew how to do school. I knew how to get good grades. I knew that I could show up and I knew how to study. And while I was in school, I didn't, as weird as this may sound, I really didn't have to worry about what I wanted to do when I grew up. I just knew that I could keep going. Um, And so you look at kind of the path, which is psychology, 
um, a program to be a substance abuse counselor, then an MBA. It's not it's not a career path that you set in eighth grade or seventh grade. It's just okay. Let's see what comes next. And so, for me, the education was like now that I get to pull that apart, I get to actually look at. I was somebody who had just kind of been crippled a lot by anxiety. And when I found something safe, I kept it going. And that was part of it. So I went and got a degree. I went to the Y. I got a master's. Um, 9-11 hit. I decided that it was a good time to change industries um, and thought maybe I'd get into medical sales because it was a lot less cyclical. And so I graduated with my MBA program in 02. Um, at, at, at the end of 02 and got a degree got a job working medical cells. My wife and I, we were going to sell the house. We we're moving to Las Vegas and I can take you to a very specific day in my life. Let's go there. Um, so this is St. Patrick's day of 2003. And I'll tell you what happened. I was working for Johnson and Johnson. Um, we were selling our house in Farmington. We were moving down to Las Vegas. I'd gone and seen the doctor beforehand and I was out in front and I think I was working flowers or something and it was 5.45 at night and I got a call from the doctor and the doctor said, John, we got your test results back and your test results came back and they're suspicious. And I was 28 years old. I had no idea what suspicious meant. I asked him and he said, well, what it means is that you have cancer. And he said, I need you to come in first thing tomorrow morning. Um, I need you to clear your schedule. I've cleared mine. We really need to talk. And so I went to bed that night um, and I just was so anxious. And I thought that – I thought finally I'd figured out the way I was going to be a part of this world. Like I'd gotten a good job. I'd gotten a good degree, started a family. Like everything on the outside was coming together. And what happened for me is that I went in there the next morning um, and I looked at the doctor and I said, what, what are we looking at? And he said, well, John – you have stage four thyroid cancer. And and I heard stage four. And I remember asking him at that time, I said, well, what's the prognosis? And he said, worst case scenario, I'm going to give you six months. I sat in the doctor's office for another 15 minutes after that. And I do not remember what else he said. I heard six months. I heard stage four. I thought to myself, my oldest son is two. He's getting ready to turn three. Um, my wife is seven months pregnant with twins and I'm never going to be around to see these kids grow up. Wow. And so I, within a couple of days of that, we went into surgery, um, and the surgery was supposed to be a few hours. Um, and I was supposed to be out of the hospital within a day or two. And the cancer had really progressed through my neck. Um, and it was through the majority of the lymph nodes. And as a result of the surgery, they severed a branch of one of the spinal accessory nerves. And I was in the hospital over a week. I think I was in there nine days, um, where I was supposed to be out in two days. Um, and I got out of the hospital and I still had cancer. Um, I was in a great deal of pain and I was prescribed Oxycontin and just as I talked about the orange juice and not remembering what kind of orange juice I had with the first drink, um, I've been sober for coming up on four years and I've thought for this amount of time how much pain I was in. And I'm going to tell you, I have no idea, but I know that the moment I was taking those pills, all of this fear, all this anxiety just started going away. I knew I was dying. I was convinced of it. 
And I didn't know how I was going to just kind of go on until that eventually happened. And these pills provided me a way of doing that. That is... Well, I can't imagine the... I mean, you were obviously in shock in the doctor's office. That's why you don't remember the rest of that conversation. And, of course, that is what happens to a person when they hear that sort of news. And I can imagine that uh, wanting to escape that, you probably never wanted to escape anything more in your life than the feeling of sitting with the realization that you could die, you you, you might die, and that your children would grow up without you. I, it's just overwhelming. So it's understandable that that mixed with the physical pain of recovering from surgery, uh, pills probably seemed like a pretty good escape. Yeah, and, and they were. And what ended up happening is I— You didn't die. No, well, shockingly, I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what ended up happening is that I ended up having another surgery at Mayo Cancer, or sorry, at um, Huntsman Cancer, um, and then treatments and everything else in between. Um, and then three, roughly three years after my first surgery, I ended up going back to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for a surgery. Um, and I went there and they, I had a surgeon who was just phenomenal and he went through and um, I remember a couple of days after the surgery, so this would have been roughly 06, um, and he came to me and he said, man, I think we've got it all. Like, I think we've got it. And I think for the normal person, if you heard that, you would think, great, man, that, now, we, now we move on. And for me, I remember my thought was, oh, no, now what am I going to do with my life? I was taking pills all day long. I was drinking a bottle a night to be able to fall asleep. Um, I had gotten myself fairly well disconnected from all the things that were important to me in my life, but somehow still holding on to a job. I was still able to make this work. Um, and then this thought came to me, which was, John, you have a degree in this. Like, you're going to be able to pull yourself out of this. You got the playbook. Yeah, you've you've got remarkable self-will. Like, like. Put it, put it to play here. Um, and so what I did is I tried to um, get myself out of this. And I tried to manage it and I tried to control it and I tried to, I tried to move from pills to alcohol from, to like manage it in any way you could think of. Um, and what happened for me is Five years after that, five years after this time frame, um, we moved back up to Salt Lake. We moved back up to Farmington, actually. And th these were all like moves for me thinking, okay, man, how am I going to get better? And I thought, well, I need to get out of Las Vegas. That's a good – it starts there. Turns, city of sin. City of sin. Turns, <laughs> I went one twilight zone to another. And turns out moving up to Farmington, um, the problem was is I brought me with me. <laughs> like, like I, I should have left me down in Las Vegas and I probably would have been okay. Um, my Wherever wife, you go, there you are. Huh? Yeah. My wife and I had a, another kid a, thinking, you know, that kids fix things. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't trade this kid for the world. He's like the most amazing little guy, but um, nothing got fixed. Um, and um, I ended up losing all of these jobs that were so important to me. And I ended up just getting to a point where I could barely function to a point where my parents and my in-laws got together and they were talking about how to get me on permanent disability, thinking that I was never going to be a part of this world again. Um, 
And you know, it is a really debilitating place when you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, they might be right. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but right when I moved into Farmington, I ran into you at the Maverick. And we talked, but you were disheveled, you had no shoes on. I reminded you that we went to junior high school and you looked right past me. That doesn't shock me at all. And right after that, I called our friends. I said, hey, guess who I just ran into? And then they kind of filled me in on the story because I, I was kind of removed from you from over the time of Farmington and then. And, and I remember thinking, whoa. And you're telling me that this is when this was all getting just ugly for you. Oh, yeah. It, it got ugly and then some. And um, what – so you kind of ran into the shell of me, but I – like I, I can tell you honestly I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, as embarrassing as that is to say, but I, I'm, I'm okay with that today. Um, and so I, I, we were, I was just trying to figure out what the problem was. And I thought to myself to some extent that it could have been linked to the cancer I had and it could have been all these other things. And, um, I will really fast forward here and I'll take you to, um, the summer of 2017, um, and so I. It, but before we jump ahead. to twenty seven yes. seventeen, um, you're fighting with your wife. You're fighting with your in laws. You're fighting with your family. Yeah. They kind of don't want anything to do with you. Yeah, and employers and everything, and everyone's trying to figure out how to help me. Um, and I am saying I don't, I don't have a problem. Like I don't ha- like I'm not sure what my problem is, but I don't have a problem. And I was a guy who thought that you know I drank or that I used pills to deal with my other problems. That, like that wasn't my problem. That was my solution to how often my wife and I fought. That was my solution to losing these jobs. That, that wasn't the problem. That was what allowed me to be a part of this world or at least stay in it. Um, so you're still holding on to that mindset, that addict mindset of uh, I've got all these problems in my life weighing me down, everybody's against me, and my, my solution, I just need to do more of it. <laughs> or, or, you know, that's that I have to have my pills, I have to have my alcohol. What was your, This is what helps me deal yeah, with all of that. Yeah. yeah. What it was is, your DOC at that time? What, what would you say? Insane as that sounds. So I, um, you know, I my DOC, I, it was pills at the time, probably right. the Oxycontin. Um, and being a cancer patient and having back problems and different things as a result of that, those became pretty easy for me to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I was working through all of that to a point where I just, I couldn't even see it. Um, and I remember it was the summer of 2017. And so I'd lost all the jobs. I, I just, I was not a part of this world at all. Um, and I remember what happened. We were going on a family trip to Newport Beach, California. And it was with um, my in-laws, and I, I love my in-laws, and we, we were real excited to go with, like, my wife and her side of the family. And it was about two days before the vacation, um, my wife pulled me aside and let me know that I wasn't invited. And I, I've i told this story a few times, and every time, like, when my wife just let me tell the story because she's heard it a lot, and um, she pulled me aside a couple months ago, and she said, you know, John, you... You thought you were uninvited. 
She goes, you were really never invited to start with. I just had to tell you. And I, I thought, how appropriate. Like, like, uh, that's telling like, it like so, it is. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, it was it's total, a great story, but you're missing one key yeah, point. Yeah, you're missing one key. You, you keep thinking you were invited. Um, it turns out she was right. Like that was um, – so it was, it was that time in 2017. So this is me. Like if we go from – Mail Clinic, me deciding that I'm going to pull myself out of this to then getting to a point where I lose everything like that I that I held dear, the jobs, um, no relationship with anybody in my life that I'm close to, um, so isolated, so disjointed from this world. Um, and I'm home alone and it's me and the dog. And I, um, it's hard for me to to know how to explain this, but I think there are some people who know what this feels like is that um, I remember waking up and I remember just being at this place in life where life had never been so heavy. It, it had been, it was so heavy. I had no idea how I was going to get through that day. Um, and then what happens is I wake up the next day and it's worse. And I don't know how it kept getting worse. And I got to, I got to a place where I just, I knew I needed help and I had no idea how to start. Um, and so for me, this is going to sound odd because it doesn't really make sense why I did this. Cause I went through the house and I locked all the doors and I pulled the blinds and I wasn't a guy people came to visit. It's not like you come to the guy who's going to suck the life out of you. <laughs> um, like, so, so I, I did that and I went to a room in the basement, um, and I sat on a bed and I locked that door, um, and I, I sat on the bed and I simply said, God, if there's a way out of this, please help me. And, and that in my life is the most sincere prayer I've ever said. And what happened as a result of that prayer is I had this job. I was, they weren't even paying me. I was going in the office. I was full commission. I couldn't sell a thing. Um, I had this job I was barely holding on to and they told me not to come into the office anymore. Mm. Um Two days later, my wife came home from Newport Beach, California, and she had this resolve in her face that I'd never seen, just stoic almost. And she looked at me and she just said, you know, John, you have to go. She said, I don't care if we stay married or get divorced anymore. I really don't care. But you have to go. Um, I, I couldn't get my kids to really even make eye contact with me. And I went up to my parents' house and I I was explaining to them what was going on. And I said, guys, I need help. Um, like, this is what happened. And they said, yeah, John, we will help you, but we're not going to help you your way anymore. And it was a day after that that I had an opportunity to go into treatment. And I am, I am convinced to this day that sometimes um, I am somebody who's deeply spiritual today and I I believe that sometimes when we think our world is falling apart, that it's God's way of bringing it together, but we're in the middle of it and we can't see it. Because if you would have asked me at that time, everything that I'd barely held on to that was so important to me, I would have told you crumbled to the foundation. I didn't realize that's what needed to happen for me to get help. Um, I was going into treatment. It was the morning of August um, 24th, I had detoxed at that time, August 24th of 2017. That's my sobriety date. 
And I remember my twins were on the main floor and they were, um, they were getting ready to go to school. And I asked Charlie, my son, um, if I could have a hug and then I'd be gone for a couple months. And he came and patted me on the shoulder. He said, good luck, dad. And he turned and walked off and I asked my daughter, Molly, who was across the room. Um, and Molly looked at me and waved and said, you know what, dad, I'm late for the bus. And she walked off and it was, it was amazing to me because I had, um, been such a horrible father for so long, but I couldn't see it. I never used drugs in front of him. I never drank in front of him. I was the guy who was isolated in the basement. Um, and I didn't realize the effect that I had had on my family until that morning. And I got an opportunity to see it. Um, and I remember on my way to treatment, just thinking, you know what? I never want to be that guy again. And I'm willing to do whatever's asked of me to not be that guy. And I just got into that place. And so um, I, I went into treatment and it's, it's interesting. I, I, I thought that I wasn't really an alcoholic or a drug addict. Like as crazy as all this sounds, like Casey running into me at Maverick and me not even remembering that as I'm sitting here right now. Um, because for some reason in my mind, I always thought that alcoholics and addicts were people that just didn't know better. And my problem is, is I always knew better, but I couldn't do better. So it was, I just, I knew I was letting myself down. I knew I was broken. I knew there was just something so fundamentally wrong with me that there'd be no way for a guy like me to come back. Um, and what happened um, is I went to treatment and I went with this level of willingness. Um, I just gave up fighting it. It was, what are you guys going to tell me to do? And I'll do it. Um, and some remarkable things happened as a result of that. Um, I'm sober today. And some of the listeners may not know what a gift that is. But I'm very aware of what a gift my sobriety is to me today. And I went in there and I, like I said, I was willing to do whatever they asked. And so I remember we were, my wife came, I was in treatment on our 20 year wedding anniversary. Um, and it was the first night we had a couples processing session. So if anybody's trying to figure out how to spend a 20, I wouldn't recommend that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think 20 is paper, diamond, not process group. Not process yeah. group in treatment. And she came and what she told me was, um, she told me that was the best wedding gift I'd ever given her. And I remember what happened is we were in the session and the the therapist who was running the session, my wife's name is Sonny, and he said, Sonny, what is it you want to see out of John? She said, I want him never to use again. I want him never to relapse. And this guy laughed and he said, you know what? John can't promise that. But what John can promise is that he'll be honest and transparent going forward. And if he's honest and transparent, you'll see this long before it ever happens. And so I sat there and I made that promise. Um, and um, she was leaving that night and she started asking me some questions about things I hadn't been honest and transparent about. Um, and I had an opportunity to be honest and transparent. And I know that night there were some things that I broke her heart, but 
there was an amazing thing that happened for me. I watched my wife drive away that night and I thought maybe she'd never come back. I thought I'd never see her again, but I felt like this backpack I'd carried around that had been 200 pounds, I finally got to set down. There was finally a way to work through this. And so for me, it, I really focus and emphasize the importance of being honest and being transparent with the people in my life. Um, and today I, I actually look at that as kind of a gift. Like I was a guy who was so full of crap, I didn't even know it. Like <laughs> everyone around me knew it. Like and the only person I was fooling was me. Mm-hmm. Where now I get an opportunity to be honest with the people in my life. And I get an opportunity just to kind of own it and to walk through it. And it, I didn't realize that was possible. Um, and so my, my wife left. The counselor at the, the treatment center told me that if I wanted to stay sober, I'd go get a job at Costco. So, of course, I brought up all my degrees and all the, and I'm like, <laughs> come on, man, this, because I'm feeling better than I've felt since 03. Like I'm, I've been sober almost two months. Born again. Born again. And um, he said, no, he goes, I don't think you're hearing me, John. He said, if you want to stay sober, you will go get a job at Costco. You need a place you can check into, check out of, a place where you're not future tripping and trying to climb a corporate ladder. You need to show this world and yourself that you can be employable again. Consistency. Consistency. So I went to Costco and two days later I was working there. Um, I will tell you to this day, that is the best job I've ever had. Um I told him I needed a couple nights off, and it was um, for my IOP program. And the rehab recommended it, so I thought, man, sweet. I don't have to go to IOP now because they told me to get this job, so now I'm, I'm, I'm free. And I met with them, and they said, no, you got to quit the job or go talk to them. So I remember meeting with the general manager of Costco, um, and she said, you know, you, you're saying you need a couple nights off, and we don't give new people nights off. Like, what is going on here? And I got to look at her and I just said, you know what? I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery and I'm trying to be well and I need to get to these classes so that I can try to get my life back. And she got up from around the desk, gave me a hug and she said, we will never ask you to work those nights. She goes, and, and this is all part of just having the chance to be honest, having the chance to own my story. I tried it out a lot of different places. And now um, I'm super open with all of it because I tell people that for so long I suffered in silence. And today I kind of insist on recovering out loud. Like I'm going to let people know that there's hope. There's not too broken. There's not too broken. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I I really felt that hesitation or fear a person you might have had going and explain being that honest with a new boss, explaining to them that you're an alcoholic. That's a powerful thing. And I hope the listeners are really absorbing the power there is in honesty and authenticity. It's relieving. It's taking the backpack off, like you said, but it's also connecting. You know, you walked out of that office with a connection and a level of respect that she had for you, that she would be willing to change their policy to help you. And I think it's uh, it's a scary leap of faith for most of us to be that honest, but it it's worth it. So how many days do you have sober right now? Uh, that's a good question. I am 
So my sobriety date is August 24th of 2017. Um, I've got this little app on my phone that I'll pull up right now. Of course there's an app. 1,366 days. Congratulations. Yeah. That's great. So you're now working at a recovery center up in Eden. Uh, tell me about that real quick. I work at a place called Spirit Mountain Recovery, and it's up in Eden. It's an all-male um, residential facility. It's small. We're eight beds. Um, I I absolutely love where I work and what I get to do. I, I tell people I've got the best job in the world today because I get a front row seat to the Miracle Show. I just get to watch what happens in these people's lives. And so... The program that I work at is also really in line with what I think is important in recovery, which is um, a focus on body, mind, and spirit. And we focus on the three of them. We don't define spirituality for anybody, um, but we do talk about a lot of mindfulness and a lot of connection um, and how to be present and how to be in the moment and how to be now and how to work through things. And I think... um, what we're doing up there is we're giving people the tools um, that they can use to walk through this world in recovery. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I recently lost somebody. And um, my wife's youngest brother, who was a good friend of mine, um, passed away on May 4th. And as a result of this disease, and he essentially drank himself to death. Um, is a sober man today... I get an opportunity to walk through that. I don't, life will still be life. Life still happens. It still comes. But I get to react to it differently. I get to be in those moments and figure out how I'm going to be of service, how I'm going to help other people walk through the pain. Um, I don't have to try to figure out how to numb out. And the, the most amazing thing for me was that this has happened and it's still it's still really fresh. I was worried about coming on this podcast because I feel I feel so emotionally raw right now because I feel like my heart got broken and it and that still happens in this world. But for me the key is is there's a way to walk through that. And there's a way to walk through it and on the as we're walking through it we realize that the journey is the beauty of it. We realize that we find things in the process. And so a lot of what we do at Spirit Mountain is just helping people realize that you don't control those things on the outside. You can't get to pick and choose what kind of life you have, but we can help you find a way to walk through it as a sober person and have this sense of self that you're attached to that is much different than it's ever been. Wow. First and foremost, I am so sorry for you and your family's loss. I've heard nothing but great things about Charlie. Um, He's an amazing man, and he's going to be missed. Second, I think your story is going to resonate with so many people out there. Uh, It's a story of hope and and what you've done and where you're going. So thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being raw. And thank you for sharing your story with us today, Dr. Matt. Uh, How's your relationship with your kids today? It's amazing. Um, These, uh, my kids are my best friends. Um, it took a while, and when I got home after treatment, um, I could tell they had some resentments. Um, I could tell that they had things, and I knew that um, it wasn't a matter of what I told them anymore. Um, I love the quote that says, you know, your actions speak so loud I can't hear what you say. And so for me, I got a chance to be a consistent dad. Um, I've not missed a birthday party since being sober. The 
the best night of my life. I don't know if we've got time for a two-minute story. Yeah, we do. Okay, let me tell you the best night of my life. My twins turned 15 years old. And I say this, and this is kind of part of my immense. And they wanted to have a birthday party at Classic Skate. Oh, I grew up with the Hendersons. Yeah, yeah, me too. And um, Classic Skate to me just sounds miserable. Like I, just, I love it. Like yeah, so you you love it. To yeah. me, it's kind of my version of hell. But, <laughs> I'm but, with you, John. Yeah, maybe hell sounds funner than classic skate. And I I didn't have any money. I was working at Costco. I pulled up there and I thought, man, this is going to be the most miserable night. Um, and I thought, man, this is not about you. I said this quick little prayer to just help me be a part of the evening. Um, and I went in there and I put on roller skates. And I'm six three. I'm not coordinated like. Picture this giraffe and strobe lights going around the ring, splashing out. Um, I had the best night of my life. I come home that night, and I'm going to bed. And keep in mind, I had no gifts. Um, and first, my son, Charlie, wakes me up, and he says, Dad, that's the best birthday I've ever had. And then my daughter comes and wakes me up 30 minutes later, Molly, and says, Dad, that was the best birthday party I ever had. These guys turned 15. That was the first time I was ever sober on their birthday. I wasn't supposed to be alive to see them grow up. And I got a chance to be sober when they turned 15. And that will, to this day, that will be the best night of my life um, because I got to be a part of it. So when you ask about the relationships with the kids, from there it only got better. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing, and I think a perfect way to end. Thank you for listening to Project Recovery, a podcast brought to you by knowyourscript.org. Don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.